0: Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and this week, putting pen to paper. Every episode, you get a new pair of feminists to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. And today you've got me, Shana Roth. I'm a senior producer here at Slate. In 2018, hilarity ensued when writer Whitney Reynolds posted a challenge on Twitter. Describe yourself like a male author would. Anyone who is at all familiar with the popular Twitter account Men Write Women or has read the works of Jonathan Franzen, for example, knows where this led. A creative writing professor wrote, She was thin in a bony, non-sexual way, but she seemed nice, so I sent her a copy of my manuscript. Here's another. She walked toward me with the confidence of how attractive she probably was 15 years ago. And one woman simply wrote, She was a lesbian. This challenge was obviously referring to a pretty specific cis heterosexual male writer, but it has always made me wonder, can men write female main characters? Should women write male characters in the first person? And more than that, is it possible in either scenario to be gripping and honest? Because obviously you can do whatever you want, but will you be successful at it? As the years have gone on since 2018, we've had a lot of discussion in the literary community about who gets to tell what stories. Should white people write main characters of color? What is the gatekeeping standard? And a lot of this goes back to marginalized voices previously not having the opportunities to write these stories for themselves that their white counterparts have always enjoyed. And that this can lead to a lot of trauma porn. Hello, the 2020 American Dirt Scandal. But the question of writing different sexes, of women getting into the minds of men and vice versa, hasn't been explored quite as much. And as someone who loves to write but can never quite seem to get her male characters to jump off the page, I wanted to explore this. Luckily, Vintage Contemporaries just came out. It's the coming-of-age story of a woman and two other women who impact her life. It's very female, and it was written by a man. We're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, I'm going to be joined by Dan Kois, a Slate editor, a man, and the author of Vintage Contemporaries. Hey, Waves listeners, if you're loving the show, and we really hope you are, and you want to hear more, you can subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning, and while you're there, you should check out our other episodes, too. Last week's was a great conversation about why exercise shouldn't always feel punishing.
1: This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding. Or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
0: Welcome back to the waves. I want to welcome now Dan Coyce, who is a senior editor at Slate and the author of Vintage Contemporaries. Dan, welcome to the waves. Thanks. So there's a really great exchange from the 1997 Jack Nicholson, Helen Hunt movie, As Good As It Gets. Nicholson plays a really self-centered, horrible writer who obviously finds redemption by the end of the movie. And there's a scene where a woman asks him a question. You have no idea what your work means to me.
1: What does it mean to you?
0: That somebody out there knows what it's like to be in here.
1: Oh god, this is like a nightmare.
0: Oh, come on, just a couple of questions. How hard is that? How do you write women so well?
1: I think of a man. And I take away reason and accountability.
0: Is that how you wrote the women in your book?
1: Yeah, the Jack Nicholson <laughs> method. <laughs> that guy. That guy should write a text.
0: <laughs> Let's start by talking about your book, Vintage Contemporaries. It's a coming-of-age story about a young woman in the publishing industry and two other women who play a pivotal role in her life. What inspired this story, and specifically, why did you choose female main characters?
1: There's a big, stupid reason that I chose female main characters that I'm going to hold off on telling you to talk about some of the smarter, more logical reasons first. Um, I wanted to write a publishing story i thought that is an interesting world to write about i'm really interested in the way that we use literature and art in our lives the way that people who who want to think of themselves as artists move through a business world that is about monetizing and optimizing that art um and publishing as you know as you Probably know is a is a very gendered industry. Um, it's the lower ranks are almost entirely female. That's not as true in the upper executive ranks, unsurprisingly, where uh, where a few men seem to just make it through. Um, but uh, but that meant most likely writing about women in that world. I also wanted to write about uh, about friendship and a friendship gone awry, particularly and. Male friendship is its own interesting topic, but female friendship seemed particularly a rich vein for me to explore, especially in the context of a book about people who really care about literature, because every woman I know who is in a very intense friendship with another woman who is also a reader often thinks of herself in terms of those like literary precedents. There's a line in the book where um, M., My main character is thinking about her friendship with Emily, her best friend. And she really is thinking through, okay, well, am I Beth uh, or am I Joe? Am I Melanie or am I Scarlett O'Hara? Am I Emma or am I, what's her name? The other one, the wallflower. And I wanted to be able to use that well of literary knowledge and reference um, as it pertains specifically to female friendship, um, which I think exists in Literature, much more concretely than it does for male friendship, which is maybe a little underwritten about in a lot of ways. Um, in this case, the uh, the fact that this is a subject that's been extremely well written about was useful to me, as opposed to feeling daunting. Um, but there's also a, a bigger, much more basic reason why I was writing about women, which is that I, you know, I'm a journalist, I'm a writer and editor at Slate. I have been writing journalism and memoir and nonfiction for like basically 20 years um, ever since I did an MFA in fiction that uh, completely that I bombed completely and sort of stopped thinking of myself as a fiction writer. And when I wanted to get back into that world, when I wanted to start making up stories again, I was very, very nervous about just writing myself, about just putting myself on the page and calling it fiction. I did not. I didn't particularly want to be writing autofiction, um, and uh, and that worried me. And so, I very early in the game, as I as this book didn't exist as a book at all, but just as a series of you know writing exercises that I was doing when I had time, I just always made the characters women because it was like the dumbest possible easy way to remind myself instantly that it wasn't me, to, to remind myself not to just. Write the things that I would do or say or think, but you think outside myself, um, because every time I went onto that page, uh, I had all those pronouns there to just instantly remind me, oh, right, 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 right. I'm writing about someone else.
0: It's so interesting that that is such a part of your writing this book, because when I'm writing, I struggle to write the opposite sex, in part because I inevitably find that my main characters have quirks or pieces of me or history that I have had in my life, there's like a always like a touch of that auto fiction. And I feel like you could still have that if you have a character of the opposite sex. And did you find that with any of your characters, but specifically with the main character Emily? And if so, how did that shape your thought about her as a character and maybe even about yourself?
1: It seems impossible to me to, to write fiction And to not include chunks of yourself in those characters, right? You are building from your own experience and memories and stories. And then you are putting them into a narrative in a way that makes sense for that narrative. But there's always going to be some of you there. And, And the longer I wrote, the more I sort of came to terms with that. That there was going to be a real mix of me and these imagined characters In each of these, in each of the sort of the three central characters of this book, the three women at the center of this book, they each have some of me in it in them. And I get very slightly annoyed with writers, though I'm sure they mean it and are saying this totally in good faith that this is just their process and it's different from my process. But I still get annoyed when writers are like, oh, yes, the character just took me in places I never could have imagined I just closed my eyes and there she was speaking to me on the page. Um, that is not true of me at all. It's a very conscious construction process that I go through with, with all of these characters and with the architecture of the book, beginning with a lot of unconscious free writing, but then, you know, pretty at some point in the process, really becoming conscious of what it is I want the characters to do and where I need to fill in parts of their story or their history or their opinions or their ideas, and then drawing from the well of my brain and my experience and the experiences of people around me to try and fill those. And that doesn't mean that it's all cribbed from my life, but it does mean that my life is in there somewhere for pretty much all of it somehow.
0: It's interesting that that whole blending of of yourself and the characters and things like that and how it works within a writing process. And there's a part in the book that when it comes to sort of the female brain or the woman brain, I think you really got it spot on and it's early in the book, so obviously there's there's more great parts throughout, but I really kind of glommed onto this because I feel like it's so hard to write believable interiority, you know, the thoughts in someone's head and you get at that as well as sort of the danger of a woman walking alone in the city, sort of without showing any seams at all. So Slate producer Daniel Schrader is going to read us a section of the book. This is where our main character, who's currently known as M, is walking alone.
1: It made her feel better that Anne-Marie would be horrified to know she was out in her neighborhood at night. She imagined with grim satisfaction the look on Anne-Marie's face when she got the phone call telling her that her sister, her only sister, her poor, beloved little sister, had been murdered and stuffed into trash bags. She held off her nervousness all the way to Avenue B, trying to work out how many trash bags the murderer would need. In the end, she settled on four. She wasn't exactly small, but she thought a murderer could fit her entire torso into one bag, if he was determined. On Avenue B, the cab swept south toward the bridges, and she felt a little less acutely how foolish this entire peaked journey was. Should happen in New York. A guy boiled his roommate and served her his soup to the homeless in Tompkins Square Park. Her mom had mailed her a newspaper clipping about his trial. I'm interested that you picked that section because I was very nervous about that section specifically with regard to writing a woman in this situation because it seems a little flippant to me. Like she is thinking about this very serious fear, a thing that I know is terrifying, but she's dealing with it a little offhandedly. She's joking about it. And that is her character, um, but it also, I think, you could object to that if you are a woman who has a different kind of response to that situation. It might not feel real to you. To me, in a way, it almost seemed potentially generational, like this scene that you just read takes place in the 90s. This woman is in her 20s in the 90s, so she's you know very determinedly Gen X. And it seemed to me that a lot of her responses, especially early in the book, to difficulty, to fear, or to discomfort, was uh, what I think of as the traditional Gen X response of like laughing it off or making a joke out of it or dismissing it as unworthy of attention, um, even though it obvious that obviously is not true. As the book goes on, her I think she changes a lot and she stops using that kind of defense mechanism, but it is a real specific kind of defense mechanism. And I think it's very possible that, that many women like you will read this and be like, oh yeah, that, that sounds just right. And many other women will read this and be like, that is not how I would deal with this situation at all. Or more broadly, this is not how I think women would deal with this situation at all. That might be true of them. It might be true of women more broadly. It also might be, that I think young women reading this book now might find it a little bit discordant to tune into the thoughts of not a woman specifically, but just of a person from 30 years ago. It's weird to think of the 90s as uh, period fiction, like a period piece, but that's what it is. And one of the things I am really trying to capture is the way that people my age, ugh, the way our thought processes changed in part as we started to learn about things from not only people older than us, but people younger than us.
0: For me, it really made sense, not only, I think, because of a generational thing, but I also think there, it taps into sort of this timeless, not resignation, but like defense mechanism that women just sort of have to develop with being at risk anytime we're walking alone. It kind of calcifies that part of our sense of humor so to me it rings really true that you know if you have to walk alone quite often eventually you're going to be a little bit hard into it and this is you're going to kind of turn a little bit jaded and you're going to have a bit of a dark sense of humor to it i mean like at least that's what's happened to me and so that's why that really i thought made sense and i guess yeah there's probably plenty of women out there that they would go a different direction in that but i think it told me a lot about her in just that
1: Right. And you might even take a kind of this kind of, in retrospect, slightly foolish risk out of a kind of perverse, like, well, fuck you, world. If you're going to be this much of a pain in my ass, I'm just going to put myself out there and, sure, murder me.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Come at me. It's fine. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. I'm bored. <laughs> yeah. I'm so bored by having to be f- afraid of this all the time. Yeah. Were any of your characters in- inspired by anyone specific?
1: The third woman in this triangle—I've mentioned M and Emily, who were these two best friends in their twenties in the 1990s, whose friendship then sort of falls apart. The third woman in the the triangle of this book is an older woman named Lucy. Older, from M's perspective, you know she's in her early 40s. She's a single mom and she's a writer. She is a friend of M's mother. Uh, they were college friends and. M's mother asks M when she comes to the big city to meet with this woman, Lucy. M works in publishing. Lucy is a writer. Anyone who works in publishing knows that you will inevitably be set up uh, by any number of literary yentas to everyone they know who has an unfinished novel in a drawer. Um, And in fact, M and Lucy work together on a book that M helps to get published. Um, And Lucy is indeed, was inspired by uh, a, a real life writer, Lori Colwyn, a writer who I really love, who um, wrote a number of well-received but not per- like hugely popular novels in the seventies and eighties, and became somewhat better known for her food writing. Um, she has two collections of her of essays about cooking called Home Cooking and More Home Cooking, and who died in her forties unexpectedly, and who has since her death undergone a, a series of, I think, remarkable publishing revivals of the sort that very few uh, late writers ever get. Her work has been reconsidered and reintroduced and republished, and her readership, I think, is significantly larger now than it ever was during her life. My character of Lucy doesn't really physically resemble Laurie Colwin. Her writing only sort of superficially resembles hers. Her career is different. Her life is different. But the thing that they do have in common is this sense of a writer who feels a little bit underappreciated in life, who then gets a chance afterward to get reconsidered and reappreciated and to come to a whole new generation that learns to appreciate them. And I chose Laurie Colwin specifically because this book doesn't, wouldn't exist without Laurie Colwin because it was reading Laurie Colwyn's novels when I was sort of having a writing crisis around the time I turned 40, that reminded me or perhaps taught me for the first time that I didn't have to only think of myself as a writer. If I could write books that were like dark and intense and, you know, super like literary thrillers or big like franzany social commentary novels um, that, that there is power and, and art in writing simply about happiness and joy, which is something that Laurie Coleman did better than I think anyone else on the face of the earth. And that really that really defined how I went about writing this book. And it freed me to write something different than the failed shit that I wrote in my MFA program, you know, twenty some years ago.
0: We're going to take a quick break here, but if you want to hear more from Dan and myself on another topic, check out our Slate Plus segment, where today we're talking about the HarperCollins strike and some of the gendered aspects that go along with that. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows like this one. To learn more, go to slate.com thewavesplus. The subject of who gets to tell what stories has really, I think, come alive in the last few years. There was a really interesting story in 2021 about the most popular female author from Spain that was, in fact, three dudes in a trench coat. Not literally in a trench coat, but it was, it was three dudes. And the jig was up when the three men accepted an award in front of the king of Spain, despite years of telling people that the author's name, Carmen Mola, was a pseudonym uh, but the pseudonym of a mom of three. So they told everybody the name's wrong, but they also claim that the woman was real. There's a few different popular accounts that post really bad writing by men of women. I'm thinking of the Reddit thread, are men writing women, the Twitter account at men write women, which has a book coming out this fall called Write Your Breast. Dan, this is the world you wrote your book in. So what are your thoughts on all of this?
1: Well, it certainly made me very nervous. I know that by writing a book uh, that focuses closely on women, that in which most of them, all of the main characters are women, writing close third person, essentially from a woman's perspective, I'm doing something that I often find super annoying when other writers do it, um, and that, and I'm a guy reading it. Women in particular can find unbelievably annoying, um, you know, stretching to fully offensive. And it made me more nervous because I don't know that I can't claim any particular expertise in women's lives or women's interiority. I'm as blinded by my personal blinders as every other human being on the face of the earth. Um, I see what is narrowly in front of me. I try to listen and fail most of the time, as we all do, uh, except for those few saints among us. But yet this story interested me so much in these and writing about these kinds of characters interested me so much that I just wanted to try it. And I, and I just really felt allergic to, um, to writing from a guy's perspective at, at this time and place in my life and in our cultural life. Like that is not, that was not the book that I wanted to write. I wanted to write about these characters. That's, you know, somewhat selfish on my part. Um, novelists, generally are fairly selfish about the things that they're doing. And so, yeah, I worried about that all the time. I had a, I had a book event last week with um, Taffy bronser Ackner, who wrote Fleischman is in trouble. um, A book that is a substantial amount of which is, is using the interior, interiority of a male character, though the narrator is throughout. In fact, a woman, Um, this woman is imagining her way into a male character. And she, we talked about this a little bit, and she, my hunch is maybe quoting someone. I'm not sure. I've tried googling it and couldn't find it. Maybe it is her coinage, but she asked herself the opposite of the Jack Nicholson question: How do you write men um, when you're a woman? And she said, basically, well, I, uh, I think of a woman, and then I make her free. <laughs> and in some respect, that's not actually that different than some of the tools I used in writing these women in that I don't think I spent every moment I was writing them thinking, what would a woman do? What would a woman do? What would a woman do? Um, instead I wrote what it seemed like a character would do a person would do. And then I went back and thought, okay, how are the constraints that, Don't always apply to me, but do apply to women in this workplace circumstance or this friendship circumstance or this late night on the street circumstance. How does that affect this character in a way that I haven't previously been thinking about? And it's almost sort of an editorial layer, like a Photoshop layer. You you lay over the initial thing to then try and view the story through a lens other than your own. And I'm sure I made a million mistakes. I had the benefit of a lot of good readers and editors who edited a lot of those mistakes out. But I still found it not like a, a minute-to-minute ordeal, but rather a, a thinking and editing challenge that I appreciated as I was making my way through the book.
0: A lot of the criticism of modern men writing women or characters that are not within their personal gender spectrum is objectification, and I was a college English major, so I'm qualified to use the phrase the male gaze. How do you avoid this when you're writing?
1: I'm sure I don't all the time. Um, My gaze is as male as any other red-blooded American man's. But it's very helpful as a guy to spend a lot of time uh, thinking about what women would do or say in particular circumstances or viewing your own work, your own imagination through doing your best of you through a completely different lens. It does expose a lot of your prejudices and tendencies and your, your, your tendency toward objectification. There were plenty of places in, in editing myself where I found, Oh, this, I really wrote this scene um, from the, like the most boring possible dude's perspective of it. And surely there is more going on here that I should be exploring. And it helped me, I think escape some of my worst tendencies as a writer. So I don't know that I was avoiding it as much as I was, you know, going back over the work over and over again to try and ferret it out. And, and hopefully, you know, doing it for the most part, the times that I felt like the sort of gender play in the novel, because it is a kind of play, um, writing a character of a different gender than yourself. The times that it got sort of most blunt and bad often were the times when I was really... I was depending on certain kinds of signposting to, you know, remind readers or remind myself, it's a lady. I think in my first draft, there were, I'm sure, multiple references to the character's own breasts, for example. A thing that a woman writing that story would not necessarily a woman in that situation would not think of, but that a woman writing that story would not dwell on the way that a guy does in an extremely male gazy way. And I've, and pulling those back through edit and realizing that those are not, that's not the way a woman would tell her own story necessarily. Um, but it is instead a way the way a guy signposts. I'm talking about a woman here. You know, there's even a tampon scene um, in an early draft that, I got a very mixed reaction on from a number of different readers who are women. Some who are like, oh, this is fun. I I don't see this in novels very often. And some who are like, I don't see this in novels very often for a very specific reason, which is that it's dumb to put it in a novel. This is This is not part of the story that a woman reading it or telling it would care about. Please cut it for the love of God. So I cut it.
0: So this isn't just a question of should cis straight men be allowed to write women without question, but it's it's also about writing outside of our lived experiences in gender and sexuality. Women writing men, non-trans authors writing trans stories. Obviously, this is something that has been explored a lot when it comes to race. There was the hashtag own voices debate recently. But when it comes to writing outside of our own sex and sexuality, it's it's something that we're, I think, a bit more used to. And I wonder, should we be questioning this or should this just be something that people do?
1: It's always worth questioning it. I hope people are questioning this book um, and any book that takes these kinds of liberties um, from a privileged perspective uh, towards the perspective of someone in a, you know, more disadvantaged societal situation. Um, You know, I am a, a, an older Gen X free speech absolutist. So I tend to err on the side of people, you know, artists write the things that they write and, and it's worth questioning it and arguing about it. But, but it's often not worth the trouble to try and get them to not do it because they're going to do it anyway. What I have loved learning from a younger generation of readers and writers, especially online, even on Twitter, our our accursed platform, is that the ways that you challenge and think and talk about that, about that kind of appropriation or that kind of writing outside your own experience are not, despite what I think a lot of people Uh, on the right might suggest are not about canceling writers are not about silencing people, but are instead about arguing on the behalf of having the freedom and ability and the support to tell the stories that are important to them. um, Especially when those stories come from non white male perspectives Um, and then interrogating the stories that do Jump over those boundaries and figuring out what works about them, what doesn't work, what blind spots the author has, um, and how that work can be better or more useful. You know, I just don't. I I don't see, for the most part, and maybe this is because I'm traveling. You know, mostly in the realm of literary fiction, as opposed to say, for example, YA, where I do think that this has been an even more charged issue. But I don't see writers like being drummed out of publishing because of this or doing anything other than being yelled at online which is totally fine. I've been blogging for 25 years. I'm used to being yelled at online. It seemed worth it to me to write this book this way because I found it so interesting and I hoped other people would also. I knew that I that it would not ring true for some people and that and that whether it rang true or not for some people The very act of writing this book was objectionable to them, I'm sure, and that is totally fine, and I hope and expect that people will interrogate and yell about this book and other books in that way. More broadly, what I want is a vibrant and representative literary community that responds to books in the spirit in which they were written that recognizes bad faith work and calls it out and that does its best to grapple with good faith work, even when readers find it annoying. I feel like my book is written in good faith. I can't wait to find out if other people don't.
0: Vintage Contemporaries is out now. Get it. Yell about it. Love it. Read it. You'll laugh. You'll probably cry. Dan Coyce, thank you so much for joining us here on The Waves. This has just been a delight hearing from you.
1: Thanks, and good luck with your writing, Writing Men. Just remember, just make them free.
0: That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by myself, Shayna Roth. Daisy Rosario is senior supervising producer, and Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio. We would love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves at slate.com. The Waves will be back next week, different hosts, different topic, same time and place. Thank you so much for being a Slate Plus member. And since you're a member, you get this weekly segment. Today, Dan and I are going to talk about the HarperCollins strike. Dan, when your book came out, you also had a piece about how conflicted you felt because your book was published by HarperCollins, a publishing house that currently has about 200 employees striking for better pay, benefits, et cetera. Dan, can you fill us in on some of the details on the strike and then explain why this made you feel conflicted about your book's publishing day?
1: HarperCollins is one of the big publishing houses. Uh, they're called the big five uh, right now. Although as they combine with each other soon, there will be only four and then three and then two and then one owned by Jeff Bezos. But, um, Uh, Right now, it's the only one of the big New York publishing houses that has a union. Uh, In fact, about 200 employees of HarperCollins, mostly junior employees, assistants, and associates um, are represented by the United Auto Workers, which I find delightful. And publishing, broadly, is an industry that has always really struggled with uh, pay disparities, with underpaying, um, with diversity issues for decades was the domain of, uh, privileged people. You know, it was always sort of like, I always described it as like, it's where the, the bookish useless children of rich families went so they could actually have something to do during their days. Um, and because it paid so badly, because it was widely assumed that anyone who got into publishing was there because they loved books so much that they would put up with anything. Because there were so many people who wanted to work in publishing that if you, if a, an assistant you know, got uppity and wanted more money or more responsibility, you could always find 100 more like them out there on the street just begging for a job at Penguin or Random House or Harper or whatever. Um, it's always been an industry that's just paid really badly, at the, especially at the lower levels, um, and that is really hard to advance in. And so generations of young people in publishing have struggled with this. Particularly young women. It's as I mentioned in the show, the the, the lower ranks of publishing, basically in every area and marketing and publicity and sales and edit editorial and design, are overwhelmingly female, and that's always been the case. Um, those those generations of those women would find themselves stuck in these jobs, not getting paid enough with no real recourse um, to do anything about it. So this HarperCollins strike, which is the first time the employees at Collins have struck since the 70s, is a really big deal because the things that they are asking for are not outrageous. Um, they're asking, you know, to get the base salary at Harper um, raised from forty five thousand dollars to fifty thousand dollars a year, fifty thousand dollars a year in New York. A city where you can't get your haircut for less than fifty thousand dollars, and you know they're they're asking for the publisher to make steps on diversity and on um, on helping employees rise through the ranks. But it's like they're not they're not asking for the moon. Um, they've been on strike since November. Since they went on strike, the house, the publishing house, which is owned by the odious News Corp, um, Rupert Murdoch's company has not come to the table. They've refused to negotiate since the day that they walked away from the table in the middle of negotiations and never came back. And so it really seems like they're just basically trying to starve these strikers out. Um, so that sucks. It's a like a sucky corporate situation caused entirely by a large corporation, I think being in, insanely greedy. Uh, this is a great time for book publishing broadly. Publishers are making all the sh- a ton of money. Um, Reading habits have – people have only bought more books since the pandemic, unlike, say, Hollywood or other entertainment industries. This is not like theater where they lost years of revenue. Publishing is doing great. Um, but HarperCollins is refusing to pay these people, and as and any movement that these strikers can get is likely to have wide-reaching effects across the industry. Is likely to change pay scales and the work situation at pretty much every New York publisher as they all match whatever the strikers can get. This is all a very long-winded way to say that it's a big strike and it pisses me off. And so to have my book.
0: That was just just some of our Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, go to Slate.com slash The Waves Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Slate.com slash The Waves Plus.